Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow. Okay, cool. Well, listen, hello and welcome to the first payroll question time of the new 2021-22 financial year. This is my first PQT, so I'm super excited to be hosting the show today. We've got some great conversations ahead of us. Just say as well, happy one year anniversary to us. Yes, that's right. PQT has been going for one year today. So we've got a new financial year. We've got a new year for us at PQT, a new host in me. And if I can give my two pence worth, so to speak, I have to say before I introduce this wonderful panel to you all, how impressed I am with the payroll industry, which has been able to pivot almost instantly to be able to work and process payrolls accurately from home. Many said they couldn't do it before this pandemic. Payroll was the one department that could never work from a remote location. Well, you've done it, payroll industry. You've proven everybody wrong. You've proven the doubters that you can run an accurate payroll service from home. And actually, as recruiters, the one huge transitional piece that we've seen is more and more employers. In fact, over 65% of new vacancies we take now are offering the flexibility to process and manage payrolls from both home and office locations. It's a transformational shift, a really exciting one to help payroll professionals with their work-life balance. And I'm sure that's uh, one trend that's due to stay and a very positive and welcome one too. But anyway, that's probably enough for me. What I want to do is introduce you to our wonderful panel today. We have Simon Parsons, Director of UK Compliance Strategies from SD Works, Kirsty Rogers, Employment Partner from DWF, John Keeble, another employment partner at DWF, Lou Gray, Head of Transitions and Operations from EY, Samantha Mann, Payroll Training Consultant from Armstrong Watson, and Andy Nichols, Industry Liaison Manager from the Pensions Regulator. And of course, my name is Nick Day, founder of JGA Payroll Recruitment Specialists, and of course, host of this podcast, which I hope you've all subscribed to, liked and shared with all of your colleagues to help you stay ahead of the payroll curve. As host, I will be doing my best to direct the conversation and keep us all on point as well as moving the conversation forward. Right, so let's get started. Six core subjects we're going to talk about today. Number one, national minimum wage. Number two, New Year's New Starters. The single enforcement body for holiday pay, workers v employees, preparing for May furlough, IR35 and some other hot topics as well. Now, before we dive into national minimum wage, we do have a little celebration and congratulations to announce here at PQT. That's because for those of you not yet aware, although I'm sure you are, for those that joined the Vote for Lou campaign, we were successful. We have our very own Lou Gray today, who has voted onto the CIPP board. Amazing news. Lou, I have to ask you, how are you feeling post-election win really really i can't believe it to be honest with you and i'm super happy that it actually happened because i just really want to represent payrollers and to be able to raise our profile you know and to be treated as equal on the platform against auditors and tax no no disrespect but i really feel that we'll have to now the last year has shown the profession and now I want to make sure something happens. So I am really, really thrilled and completely honoured that this has happened. Well, I know I speak for all of us here at PQT, Lou. A huge congratulations. We know you're going to do a wonderful job for the payroll community. 
fantastic appointment and we are all super excited for you. Right, let's then jump into topic number one, national minimum wage. Now, it's estimated that around 2 million of the UK's lowered paid workers are going to benefit from an increase in national living wage. Uh, I mean, wage. So I'd like to kick off this conversation by asking Samantha, if I may, some of the key considerations that perhaps payroll professionals need to consider in this new tax year in relation to national minimum wage. Yes, excellent. So um, I think what they need to consider is, yes, that the rates go up. Uh, need to consider um, the fact that April statistically is the most non-compliant month of the year when it comes to non-compliance um, for national minimum wage. And we know that from uh, reports that have been published by Bayes and through a HMRC statistics over the year. Of course, the new rates come in for any pay reference periods that begin on or from the 1st of April um, 2021. I was forgetting what year we were in there. I think I'd lost a year. And of course, one key issue this year uh, is not just the slight modest increases, if you will, of the national minimum wage, but for the national living wage, we're starting to see put into place uh, or come to life the government's intention are for the national living wage to reduce it for to uh, to become payable to employees from age 23 as opposed to age 25, which was where we were at when national living wage was first introduced. And of course, this will continue to reduce until we are delivering to employees age 21. And this is as a result of consultation work that's been carried out by the Low Pay Commission in previous years. Um, uh, just as a total aside, the Low Pay Commission, of course, have launched their annual uh, consultation again this year um, and they are particularly looking at the impact that the pandemic has had this last year on employers as well as workers and also the impact of these increases particularly to the living wage um, on the hours worked on the op job opportunities particularly for young workers um, and how that will um, uh, affect them going forward and particularly as we look to see the living wage having a far greater reach. From a practical perspective, I think one final thing I would say is for employers who offer salary sacrifice schemes, particularly um, particularly popular where you have a, a pension scheme that relies on a salary sacrifice scheme, um, is at this time of the year or preferably before uh, April um, that the payroll professional or HR professionals will have sat down and assessed which employees may actually have to be taken out of the salary sacrifice scheme as a result of these increases. This isn't unique to this year. This happens every year. But obviously, um, this year, it's more likely to impact more people as a result of the, uh, the drop in age uh, for the living wage. And I think, um, you know, if that hasn't been done, then that needs to be done. But of course, it's not just an hourly pay. What is the pay rate I am being paid for time worked? It's making sure that the measure of time worked is gathered accurately as well. Excellent. Fantastic. And we can see right in front of us on this presentation, we've got some changes in relation to slip, sleep in shifts rulings. Uh, Simon, I wonder if you could bring that to, to life for us. Um, yeah, so we've had the Supreme Court uh, make the ruling in relation to the Mencap case, uh, indicating that sleeping shifts aren't covered by national minimum wage as far as the uh, individual isn't actually undertaking any work. If they are undertaking work, then it is. Now, this is something that I'm sure Kirsty and John are specialists in that can tell us much more. But just going back to Sam's comment on the new rates, 
just so that we're aware, the proposal for next year for national living is £9.2. So people probably need to keep that in mind as they think about this. And that's part of the consultation. And that also impacts in with your salary sacrifice comment, uh, Sam, as well. And Andy with uh, pensions, because lots of smart pensions have been operating on salary sacrifice. And so the uh, number of people brought into scope of that breach opportunity is increasing. But uh, Supreme Court, uh, Kirsty may be great, or John, if yeah. So the Supreme, Supreme Court decision was uh, very long awaited, it's fair to say. The case, the MenCap case that you're talking about, uh, I think was, was heard in the Supreme Court in February 2020. So they've waited 13 months to come to a decision. And that's after all the appeals. Uh, and the question was whether sleep in shift time uh, counted as work for the purposes of the national minimum wage regulations. Uh, and the case had gone through all the appeal courts. Uh, the other way, the decision reverse was reversed in the Supreme Court, and they decided that sleep-ins didn't count. Uh, and they gave they, they went through sort of five steps in reaching that decision, which probably worth uh, thinking about as they may apply to other pay cases. Uh, firstly, for the purpose of deciding whether a purpose is uh, a person is working under the national minimum wage provisions, they said it didn't matter that, that a worker is at their employer's discretion or were required to follow instructions. And secondly, they took account of the low pay commission's uh, discussions prior to implementing the national minimum wage regulations. Um, and they hadn't intended that anyone who was permitted to sleep could be deemed to be working or engaged in time work when they first reported to government prior to the 1999 regulations. So they went right back to the Low Pay Commission and what this um, legislation had been based on. And then thirdly, in the definition of time work, the phrase awake for the purpose of working, which was examined in quite close detail, was found to be composite. You can't break it up into were they awake and for the purposes of working. Any time not asleep cannot therefore be time work. Um, and they also said because of that, there was therefore no need to look at the question of what was being done um, at all if anyone was doing a sleep-in. The only time, really, that um, work at national minimum wage started to run was when the worker was called upon to respond to someone's care needs uh, when on shift. And then that time does count for national minimum wage. If you're doing a sleep-in shift, it doesn't matter that you're at the employer's behest um, or anything about that. It wasn't intended to be part of the national minimum wage regulations and doesn't count. And um, so that was it was quite a big deal, that case, because I think it affected so many care organisations and so many workers. And obviously there's nothing to stop uh, sleeping shifts, the flat rate being increased, but um, it, it won't count for the purposes of national minimum wage. Oh, interesting. Fantastic. And uh, we've got the Check Your Pay campaign. Who would like to talk us through through that? I think the government had a, a check your pay campaign to encourage employers and those on low wages to actually check that the right pay was being rewarded. I think to draw back on the national minimum wage and to give some statistics on it, during 2019, 
to 20, HMRC had closed more than 3,300 investigations and 65% of them were targeted enforcement. And they identified 20.8 million in arrears. And that then had a knock-on effect to over 263,000 workers who were due, due arrears because of errors in national minimum wage. And they issued penalties on the grounds of around 18.5 million. So in a roundabout way, the government are encouraging the employers to take a stand because they, what we're looking at is it's reputational damage whenever we look at some of the lists that are, are being um, shared online and publicly and encouraging the employee then to report the employer if there's any concerns or if they don't feel that the advice and the pay that they're receiving is correct. And this is all always on a, a website where employees can log on and check whether they have been paid the national living wage and the national minimum wage. Excellent. I also read that one of the changes with the new national minimum wage and national living wage statutory instrument is that there's an extension of the record retention requirements for national minimum wage. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Simon? Yeah, sure. Uh, and, and it's been there's a little bit of a discussion going around on data retention regardless. And I've seen yeah. some saying that uh, you only have to keep records for three years and then you must destroy them. And Andy may have a view on the pension side, but actually the change in the regulations this year doubled the retention, the minimum retention for national minimum wage from three years to six years. So there is a requirement to keep records in relation to individuals and how their makeup of pay on time and pay is to prove national minimum wage rate element. And you could say why, and there is good reason for this. Many will have already kept data for six years. Generally, that's for statute of limitations. Maybe John or Kirsty have more comment on in that area. I don't know. But uh, inspectors, if you only get three years' record and they found an error in year three, would uh, make an assumption that you made the same error in year four, five, and six, whether you had records or not, and enforce it. Uh, with the penalties, etc. So there is an element of the requirement now is that you retain three years, uh, six years, sorry. Uh, many people won't have six years. So the requirement, of course, is now to not dump any of the records you have, but add a fourth year and then a fifth year and then a sixth year and then just keep it going a minimum of six years going forward. But often we find, and I'm, hence why I mentioned Andy in there, that people think they've got to get rid of things after so much time. But there's also pension record retention requirements. Well, let's I don't know if you had Andy, a comment there, Andy. Let's bring Andy in on the pensions side. Tell us how it, how it, uh, how it affects pensions. Well, from a, from a pension scheme perspective, they need to keep records for to make sure that the right amount of money is paid out to the very last person who's entitled to a pension from that pension scheme. And if you if you speak to them generally, they'll probably come to the conclusion it's probably about 100 years that you need to keep the records for, you know, um, and, and they know their scheme. And of course, the source of that information is invariably the employer. So if there's any gaps in records, and we as a pension regulator can go to a pension scheme and say, have you got the right data? And with the pension dashboard coming up, they're gonna those any gaps will be exposed. So they should all be yeah. checking their data, and they'll be coming back to employers saying, "Ah, oh, we haven't got all the data. We've we've got bits missing, or or maybe we don't think it's right." 
and they'll be coming back asking payroll HR for that information. So yes, there's a link, isn't there? You know. So if the data is required, yes, it is. then it should be kept. Yeah. I think, think sometimes we misunderstand the obligations under the general data protection regulations and we think we've got to get rid of all these records. But actually, under the law, lawful purpose uh, elements of GDPR, we actually have to retain them. And these are lawful purposes for retaining records. It doesn't mean we have to go and publish individuals' details on the web or sell them off to uh, to scam callers that we've been talking about earlier so you can get your next iPad 12 um, uh, delivered unless you press one. Um, that, that's not its purpose. You have to keep it secure, but you shouldn't be destroying records that you need to keep by law. Anything to add to that, Kirsty? We do get asked a lot about how long how long we have to keep the records, and and you know, it, a lot of people are expecting three years, six years, seven years. But what they don't really appreciate is it's different for every different purpose, and you can't just have uh, one person's data dealt with it in one time span. Uh, and you really need to look at what you've got and what it should be kept for and what it should not be kept for, because there is an obligation not to keep stuff as well. But um, uh, I think it's separating it out is is what's challenging and understanding the differences. Sure, sure. That makes sense. Well, I'm going to bring back the poll results in just a moment. Before we do, uh, Sam, John or Lou, anything, any extra points you want to raise regarding national minimum wage? Um, well, I think I, I would add, like the Check Your Pay campaign obviously has come out at the moment because this is a timely sure. uh, timely part of the year to raise awareness, uh, not just to workers, but also to employers um, to ensure good compliance going forward, which is all part of fulfilling the recommendations made by the Director of Labour Market Enforcement um, a few years ago. So David Metcalf um, talked about compliance, talked about the importance of compliance, but he also talked about the fact that it isn't just about enforcement. It's also about education. And, and I think what we've seen also this year with national minimum wage is a change to the layout of, of guidance for employers and for individuals on the whole subject of national minimum wage. And there's been some real positive feedback, uh, commentary um, about, you know, the, how the new guidance looks. So it'd be good to hear from um, uh, listeners in the chat box how they're finding the guidance. Are they finding it useful? Do, would they prefer the old Bayes uh, PDF uh, guide or, or are they encouraged by what they're seeing now? Excellent. Fantastic. Well, let's bring back the poll results from the first poll. How is everyone feeling on their temperature check? Good news is um, that the majority feel like they are. There are a few knowledge gaps, but they're generally OK. Six percent. It really doesn't impact me. Uh, Maybe worth exploring in a little bit more detail. But the overwhelming result so far is hopefully generally OK, which is which is great. But for the moment, let's move to topic number two, which is New Year. New starters. Before we jump into the nitty gritty of the legislation, I read a, a really interesting uh, blog by Simon recently, which talks about why new tax year even starts on the 6th of April. So I think that's a great place to start for this. Um, and then we'll jump into the uh, legislative side. So tell us why it starts on the 6th of April. You, you'll need me to read my article, uh, Nick, and remind myself. <laughs> <because> <laughs> Yes. Going back to the 1700s, the 25th of March was actually New Year's Day. So um, and then there was a change in the calendar alignment. So we aligned ourselves between the Gregorian and the Julian calendar and lost a number of days. So actually, the 5th of April became New Year for tax purposes at that point. And then in 1800, 
again, an alignment between the Julian and Gregorian calendar. The day was moved forward one day, which then became the 6th of April, and it's stayed there since. So the 6th of April actually is traditionally New Year's Day up until about 1752, when it moved to the 1st of January. And that may seem very strange to us, but uh, that's why tax year starts on the 6th of April, is because historically that was New Year's Day. There we go. Fantastic. I'm glad I asked you a bit of history in there. It shows the knowledge of the panel, you see. It far extends. It far extends. Uh, oh, so let's start. Well, we're about told, you see, or some of us are. I don't think you were born in the 1700s, though, Simon. <laughs> Something. So I have been called a dinosaur before. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's go back to you, Lou. Tell us about some of the changes we need to prepare for for new starters at uh, new tax year. I think the first point just to raise is that if you do have new starters and they do hand in a P45, that you check the date on it and you check that it, it's current and that it doesn't go back into the previous tax year. I'm sure that many of us have faced the using a tax uh, tax code that belonged to a different year. So it's always remember that when you get that documentation in to check it and just be sure of the date. And if there's any issues, then you can always go on to government.uk and they usually have some helpful blurb in reading through just to establish which tax code you use. The starter checklist has been updated this year. Um, it's to take into account the postgraduate loan that has been brought in for Scotland. But again, you're having to make sure that whenever you are having your new starters, that your HR team have got a copy of the new checklist and that they're distributing it to people who are actually going to join the business. Because it's very important whenever somebody's signing and completing this starter checklist that it is the current one so that all the answers are um, completed and are signed off as being correct. Excellent, fantastic. And how do you um, tell us who would like to take the subject of score Scottish student loans? Some, some reason went into a Scottish accent then, completely un not meaning to. Um, who would like to talk us through that? Well, I'm happy to if you want, or I don't know if Sam, but Scottish, uh, yeah, Scottish Plan 4 started on the 6th of April. So notices would have been issued from uh, late uh, February to I'd probably say mid-March. You'll be receiving SL1 start notices for Plan 4. So in effect, the Scottish students have a different earnings threshold point where the 9% contribution is started to be deducted than England, Wales. And so that's now a brought in. Previously, they were Plan 1. Uh, now they've moved to plan four from the 6th of April. And hence also the reason why the starter checklist has changed. It's changed quite drastically. So there used to be, I think, like questions nine through 18, whereas now that's nine and 10. Uh, so look at it and make sure you're capturing the right information. The other thing about it uh, is that often people think, well, if I presented a P45, I don't need a new starter checklist. And it's anybody that starts, you need a new starter checklist. The other aspect I think that people say is, uh, well, if I don't collect it, I just put 10T1 and that's all okay, isn't it? Well, HMRC actually view that as an error and they believe that the employer has actually not fulfilled their duties. So there is actually a duty to get that new starter checklist. But new Scottish student loans are now in place. Uh, they replace any pre-existing plan or plan if they're issued, because you have one of plan one, plan two, or plan four. But generally, a Scottish individual wouldn't have had a plan two unless they've uh, swapped where they live between studies. 
So uh, plan one, plan two, plan four are sort of mutually exclusive. If you get one issued, they override the other. Um, Sam, do you have any thoughts on student loans? Uh, just thought I'd uh, well, no more than, uh, than you've covered, really. You know, that, that discussion about the fact that Plan 1 is being replaced now by Plan 4 uh, for Scotland. It gives them a higher threshold before they will start to repay their loan, which is good news uh, for the borrower. And the notification should, of course, have been coming through from because HMRC and the student loan company had a massive job to transfer those individuals from Plan 1 through to Plan 4 and notify employers. So the, the employers should have been receiving those. Um, I think one new, one other thing that I would add this, this time of the year, and I'm sure everybody signed in today probably doesn't need to be reminded, um, but the earlier year update uh, that we used to have, which was used to change any information that had been submitted in a previous tax year um, or the, the, the previous tax year, um, that has now gone um, and has been replaced with the uh, accumulative full payment submission, which, which I think we all called for when real-time information was introduced. Um, but uh, instead, we had an earlier year update. And now uh, I think sense has been seen, although I'm sure Simon has a better insight from a software developer perspective. But I think common sense has been seen. And we now have a situation where we have that ongoing um, adjustment being made through an accumulative full payment submission, um, FPS. So uh, uh, last year was a transition year. This, this year, it's gone. Am I right there, Simon? I've not just dreamt that up, have I? I do have odd dreams. No, you're quite, you're <laughs> quite right. No, the uh, year-to-date FBS has been around now for two years, so this is third-year-end operation. But some people have been panicking a bit because the earlier year update has gone. It hasn't really gone. It's transitioned into something new which replaces it. So don't panic. The process is probably actually very similar, except you don't report differences anymore. You just report the right value, and it overrides. Uh, the problem with the EYU was if uh, if you did an EYU and, and HMRC said, well, we haven't got it, send it again, and you do another one, and then you do another one, it kept on adding, whereas the FPS will replace, hopefully, if there's not a duplication. Very complex stuff. I was just thinking the other area of news a year was um, uh, we experienced what they call the pension bounce and usually get a load of queries, uh, which talks about start of pay reference period and the new uh, values that apply because uh, they kind of trigger. I don't know if you've got a comment there, Andy, but they're not judged on payment date. No, the, the, the threshold start on the 6th of April, the new threshold, only the upper change, but so in lots of ways, that would only be used for the calculation of contributions for those who are paid in excess of the upper threshold, which is equivalent to the upper earnings limit. Yes, and you really need to know what your scheme requires because there is a default approach, which is what you could argue, what is the thresholds in place at the beginning of your pay reference period, which might be, for instance, the 1st of the 7th of April if it's weekly paid. So what's in the beginning, what's on the 1st is what's applicable for the whole of that period, or might be what's at the end. And you certainly would you wouldn't want it to be five days of old and two days of new thresholds, for instance. So most payroll systems have got it down neat and tidy. So when you process your first payroll in the in the new tax year, the system will know what it is it needs to do. But in theory, you should be checking that to see whether or not that the method that the payroll system uses is the same as what your pension scheme requires. 
but I'm not sure people know enough to know that that is true. So I, I think, mean, a, <laughs> and it's not a problem if you if the payroll system operates, it should be correct, and that's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> We've had a couple of questions here, so I'm going to field them through. And um, one of those is: if you had Scottish staff with student loan deductions on previous tax years, will you get an SL2 and then a new SL1 with a new plan type zero three? Uh, no, I think, shall I jump in and answer the question there? You won't get an SL2 because an SL2 is an instruction to stop taking any student loan. So the SL1 instruction is a replacement instruction. So the SL1 starts plan four means stop anything else you've got already and start plan four. If an SL2 instruction came through and you applied it, it would mean stop any student loan deduction, including plan four. So uh, software-wise, you would never apply a stop notice because stop means stop. Because it's not plan specific, it means all plans. Hopefully that helps a bit. So just apply the F1 and you should be okay. And if you have a starter starting in April, but receive the P45, do you update just the tax code only and not the earnings? Yeah, I I would say you you take that as your starter point. So if you're looking at an L code uh, and they were on a 1250L on the P45 from the previous tax year, you would uplift that to 1257L? I'm looking yep. for a nod. <laughs> testing my yes. knowledge of um, yep. my memory. Thank you. Thanks. That's a, a few nods there. So, yeah. But just be aware, the online tool was wrong as of yesterday. I don't know what it's like today, but I think because last year we didn't have an uplift, I don't think they've updated the online tool on gov.uk. So it's apply the P9X instruction and you would normally uplift an L code by seven, but only up to a point. I think it's only up to something like 25th of May. So it's a little bit complicated, really, and a bit convoluted. But you wouldn't use earnings from the prior tax year in the current. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, I think it's probably time, comes of time, we move over to our next subject area, which is the single enforcement body for holiday. It's just to remind everyone that as part of the Taylor review, there was a proposal made for a new body to enforce the application of national minimum wage and holiday pay. And Sam was close with that whilst in your experience at the CIPP, because you were kind of part of those uh, stakeholder groups, as I was, uh, with David Metcalf and co. Well, actually, was that David Metcalf? Well, certainly the base guy on policy. Yeah. Yes. No, I think I think this uh, the single enforcement body as a subject has come up when and it comes up whenever we talk about holiday pay. So I know we're going to hear from Kirsty on the ruling from the Supreme Court recently. The Supreme Court have been very, very busy. I think they just had this stockpile of kind of things to publish. So they've been very, very busy. So we're going to be hearing great stuff from Kirsty. But I think the importance of making sure that we are on on par with uh, our holiday pay entitlement and calculations is because somewhere down the line, and we're still waiting for the government's response to the consultation on the provision of a single or the creation of a single enforcement body, is that one of the key features of this this body would be to move um, enforcement of the payment of holiday pay from the individual who would have to challenge their employer through the tribunals um, to state, as it is with national minimum wage now. Uh, and so, what we as employers need to be uh, need to be 
ensuring is that we know the rules, we understand the rules of entitlement, and we understand the calculation. Um, and then I'll, I'm going to hand over, uh, but we are, I stress that we are still waiting for further news on that. But I'll hand over to Kirsty because she's got some more valuable news on the Supreme Court ruling. Don't build me up like that, Sam. Um, <laughs> I'm going to just update you on a case that's sort of run and run and is going to continue to run, which has been in the Supreme Court. But the decision that's come out this week is in the Employment Appeal Tribunal. But he, the, Mr Smith has appealed to the Supreme Court. So um, the, a recap, really, uh, on the case of Mr Smith and Pimlico Plumbers. Pimlico Plumbers case in 2018 decided, Supreme Court decided, that uh, Mr Smith was a worker, not an independent contractor. And since he got that decision, he decided that he wants to pursue holiday pay claims pursuant to another Supreme Court case called King and Sash Windows. And it's probably worth just uh, recapping on that case for you. Um, in that case, uh, Mr King was deemed to be a worker um, and he was entitled to claim back pay for his holiday pay going back years, not just two years, completely back to the start of the entitlement to holiday pay uh, because he had had no facility to take holiday. Because um, Sash Windows weren't paying him because they thought he wasn't a, a worker, he couldn't afford to take holiday. So he didn't take it. He didn't have the facilities to take it. And the case decided that he could, um, he, A, he was a worker and therefore he could claim holiday pay going back because he hadn't been able to take it. So Mr Smith, having been deemed to be a worker for Pimlico Plumbers, um, he, he has now claimed his holiday pay in the same way. But he did take holiday, but he took it unpaid. Uh, and the Employment Appeal Tribunal in the last few weeks have decided that he can't claim back pay because he did take the holiday, albeit unpaid. Uh, so um, he's been prevented from doing that. So they've narrowed the scope of the King and Sash Windows case, but Mr. Smith has appealed to the Supreme Court. So there will be a further update on this case. And there have been a number of other employee worker type cases, which John's going to talk a bit more about later. So, um, you know, the key part about a lot of the worker status cases is that they will be entitled to holiday pay. Um, so we, we can expect to see more of this. Um, and so what are some of the practical implications then from a payroll perspective if, for the people watching this what are the kind of implications I need to be preparing for and considering in, in relation to both to the ruling and to where we are at the moment but if you've got a pile of people who weren't deemed to be workers and were independent contractors and now are likely to be deemed to be workers claim holiday pay going back uh, years if they haven't taken any holiday and, and didn't take any holiday because they weren't going to be paid for it. That's the sort of long and short of the King and Sash Windows case. And Mr Smith is trying to say, even if they did take holiday pay, even if they did take holiday unpaid, they should still get back pay for that. And there is a, a couple of other decisions on appeal around holiday pay on an ongoing basis. So, um, And obviously we've had the Uber decision, which John's going to talk about. They were all deemed to be uh, workers, so they will have rights uh, in, in relation to holiday pay too. So it, it, it's potentially pretty big for um, some employers who weren't employers before, but now employ workers that they thought were independent contractors. 
Yeah, just adding there, Nick, that there is a general principle. This is where I kind of throw in my uh, stir the nest a little bit. Uh, the wasp nest is uh, and put out there. Lots of holiday paid practice in the UK is shrouded in historic practice and hasn't taken into account the Working Time Directive or the Employment Rights Act regulation changes. And remember that the change in April 2020 came in after the start of the pandemic. And even the questions that uh, uh, Lou and I get ourselves involved in social media a lot, Lou possibly watches it all and faints maybe occasionally, and I kind of uh, bite occasionally but there's an element of a lot of people are not doing holiday pay correctly the basic principle is everyone's entitled to 5.6 weeks in most circumstances and the pay is an average of 52 weeks uh, earnings over the previous 104 weeks the latest you take ignore zero weeks and people don't really get that and that's why the element of the enforcement and some of these rulings is consideration. And maybe we'll discuss Uber in a minute and the ruling there with John as well. But uh, it's principally shown that actually a lot of people don't know how to do holiday pay at all. However, I've got to say, and in fairness, and Sam's been involved in some of the consultations with Bayes at policy level, as I have, the guidance is extremely confusing and complex uh, to understand. So it's a big topic, especially if the single forcer comes in. How do we get this right? Uh, and uh, going back to national minimum wage, national minimum wage actually isn't about an hourly pay rate at all, uh, which I think Sam said at the very beginning. It's not about an hourly pay rate. And the same with holiday pay. It's not about an hourly pay rate or hours worked, it's about paying 5.6 paid weeks holiday a year at the average pay. And for Northern Ireland, including Lou, I think we're still on the 12-week average for Northern Ireland. I don't think it's been expanded to the 52-week, which is in the United, well, Great Britain being England, Wales and Scotland. Northern Ireland, as part of the United Kingdom, is still on a 12-week average holiday pay. But people think, oh, well, that hasn't changed then, so we're okay. Well, I suggest actually your holiday calculations are probably wrong there as well, because they're not doing the average. Anyway, I think from our perspective, we we obviously get a lot of of employment tribunal claims, a lot of holiday pay claims. They're not about issues of legal principle. Uh, almost the entirety yes. of them are where people just haven't applied the correct formula for calculating holiday. Yes. It's a lot. Some of the included as well, and that's still ongoing. You know, voluntary overtime, overtime commission, bonus, what is normal pay? That still rumbles on, and there are still further cases going through the courts on that. We all know the importance of manual payroll skills. We talk about it a lot, but is this some of these issues as a result of the payroll systems being unable to handle the calculations? I think that that probably doesn't help yeah. in some in some respects, but I think it comes back to the basics that as a profession, we have to know how to manually calculate a pay. And I think that is important that we do understand how a system works. I know that's probably viewed as quite an old-fashioned view, but I think whenever you're dealing with such complex calculations nowadays, you do have to have that basic understanding. And as Simon has said, it is, you know, you're legally entitled to 5.6 weeks paid over the 52-week holiday year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
And it's about about understanding how that fifty two weeks is made up and how you go you know, you go about it and agreeing what the calculation is. And very many businesses, I suppose, um, when I worked in the government, a lot of businesses were ignoring it because there hadn't been the court cases. We've had a you know a glut of court cases giving us answers, so there haven't been those. So now that these have started to have answers, then now is the time that people need to start looking, understanding the calculation, and having it signed, signed off and agreed as they approach. You're following up actually on what Simon said um, earlier, uh, and also uh, what Lou's just said. Um, it's that. It's of critical importance that people make those calculations. There's a lot of people with their head in the sand because they're still working from uh, legacy systems as opposed to really applying the law. Um, But I think we also um, have a fundamental, this is holiday pays uh, and holiday entitlement sits on the borderline between employment law, HR responsibilities and payroll uh, responsibilities. So I think a lot of professionals will still say, actually, when it comes to entitlement, we're, we're waiting for someone else to tell us. Um, so I think, you know, it's one of those areas that that overlaps and therefore uh, can be it can quite often fall victim of the, well, that's not my problem. That's somebody else's problem to deal with. Um, but the reality, uh, and I know we're going to hear more from John, is that the, the employer, whoever within the employer's organisation, does need to be dealing with it. And so I suspect that it will be a team communication in order to establish a solution. Excellent. Well, let's, let's take it to John in just a moment. There's a couple of questions before we get there, if we can. One is, I have a tax year end issue. Our figures reported on the HMRC gateway do not match what we have processed through our payroll. What could be the cause of this issue and how do we resolve it? So there's a number of aspects. The EPS won't have been filed yet is one aspect. So the EPS deadline is the 19th of April. The other reasons for misbalance is usually an inadvertent duplication on HMRC records. But sometimes when two personal items of data have changed in an individual, uh, HMRC don't necessarily recognise it as the same person. So they think they've got another job. And the year-to-date totals from the original and the year-to-date totals from the new will mean there's a doubling of a period. So the means of resolution generally is, well, there's two. You could try another FPS, but if there is generally uh, a duplication, it won't fix it. It'll just fix the one record with the same bad uh, is to actually raise what they call a dispute resolution case with HMRC, and they'll attempt to investigate it. Quite often, people will come and say, well, can't you figure it out from the payroll? Well, the issue isn't on the payroll. The issue is on the HMRC records. And unfortunately, at the moment, an employer cannot see what those records are. All you see is a total and a debt demand. But for April, for March payroll, the figures won't be finished yet because we've not actually hit the end of year statutory deadline, which is, isn't until 10 days time. So sometimes there is an element of just making sure the EPS filing, the employer payroll payment submission, which does the uh, statutory payments recoveries uh, are completed and applied because those aren't part of the full payment submission that happens in payroll on the standard cycle. There's something that follows and also incorporates the whole PAY scheme. Uh, hopefully, I've not lost too many people there. 
but uh, there's an element of actually HRC have to fix a lot of those types of discrepancies. Lou may have some thoughts. I don't know. Well, no, I do agree with you, Simon. I'm taking it on the basis that the, the person has only had a discrepancy in month 12. There's also the, yes. the consideration that you should put into your policies and protocols that you do a monthly rec to make sure that everything balances month on month. And that way you're, it's easier to find if there is a discrepancy along the way. That is not to say that maybe HMRC don't misallocate some funds, yes. but at least month on month, if you are on top of that and you can see what you're submitting versus what you're paying, if it's balancing, well, then that should help move forward into the next month, knowing that you're clear. And if anything does happen moving forward, you know that you've been reconciled at a point and you'll have that in, to, to use that word evidenced and you'll be able to refer back to that to help with better um, conversations with HMRC. Excellent. We've had a few questions in regarding links to bits and pieces. I'm not going to answer those now. We'll put those in the transcript notes. We'll send out answers to some of the questions we don't get to today in follow-up. So keep an eye on your emails and that will come through. Let's move forward then to the next topic, um, which is we're looking at workers versus employers. Um, I think the best person to lead us away on this conversation is going to be John. We've all highlighted it already. Um, so, John, tell us a little bit about um, workers versus employers and some of the things that uh, – yeah, that you've been witnessing. Well, uh, the, the big news is clearly the, the Uber decision, uh, which uh, you, you'd have to be avoiding uh, avoiding TV or media probably not to have come across. But the issue of employment status has been a, a pretty vexed one for quite a number of years uh, for employment lawyers. And uh, to give you some, some flavour of it, uh, the Office for Tax Simplification uh, produced a report on employment status in 2015 uh, and in that, they said it was a, a complex and wide-ranging subject. Um, and if they managed to solve it, they would immediately move on to world peace because they'd be on a roll. Uh, rather unfortunately, they didn't so solve either employment status or world peace. Uh, and it's probably been the most significant issue for employment lawyers for, for quite a number of years. And if you're looking at, at status from a tax perspective, well, tax recognises employment and self-employment. But being employment lawyers, we always like to go one better. Uh, and therefore, we recognise three forms uh, of status uh, if an individual is providing their services in the job market. Uh, the first of that is, is employment. Uh, and if you're an employee, you get the full range of employment rights, unfair dismissal, you know, redundancy payments, the ability to transfer to a different employer on a change of business, all of those type of things. Now, at the other end of the scale, you could be a self-employed independent contractor, in which case you don't get any rights at all. And in the middle is a, is a hybrid type category. It's a worker, someone who's not an employee, but they're still entitled to some uh, employment rights. And most of the litigation through the courts, and there's been a lot, uh, has been with individuals who are classified as self-employed, but they're claiming that they are workers. Uh, and what they're generally claiming uh, is, firstly, holiday pay, secondly, minimum wage, uh, and sometimes unlawful deduction from wages. So that, that sets the scene to uh, a degree uh, in terms of the type of, of claims that, that there will be. And uh, for various reasons, they tend to be focused on career-type companies, uh, and a lot of the significant decisions have been against organisations like City Sprint, 
economies, uh, and of course, Uber as well. And, and if you're looking to decide whether someone is a, a worker or not, uh, rather unhelpfully, the tests for whether someone is an employee or a worker are broadly the same, albeit that for a worker with a slightly lower pass mark. But the key factors that you look at in trying to decide whether someone is genuinely self-employed or potentially a worker or an employee are really three things. Uh, the first is what's known as personal service. You have to turn up to work to do the work if you're an employee or a worker. If you're a contractor, you, you may be able to subcontract or send someone else in your place. The second key aspect is control, you know, the extent to which you are directed in where you work, when you work, and how you work. Uh, and all of those were, were relevant, particularly the control in the Uber case. Uh, and in Uber, the drivers were claiming, as I say, minimum wage, holiday pay. They said they were workers. Uber said, ah, well, we're just acting as their agent, and they are genuinely self-employed and not entitled to any of those employment-type rights. Now, the Supreme Court decision uh, found that the Uber workers were, or the drivers uh, were workers. Uh, and really the reason for that uh, was in part due to the fact that they were subject to particularly stringent levels of control that you wouldn't expect for someone who was genuinely self-employed. So, for example, drivers' remuneration was fixed by Uber and they're not permitted to charge any more than the fare calculated by the Uber app. Uh, importantly, the contractual terms that the drivers worked under were wholly dictated by Uber. They had no choice to negotiate those particular terms. And of course, some of these things you may be familiar with in that uh, Uber monitored the driver's rate uh, of acceptance and cancellation of trips uh, and imposed penalties when the cancellation rate exceeded a particular level. And these are all things which demonstrated fairly high degrees of control, uh, including uh, Uber stipulating the routes that had to be driven and imposing a disciplinary rating system, which was used as an internal tool for managing performance, uh, which rather smacks of, of something akin to a, a disciplinary. So the overall conclusion was that, that the levels of control were such that the drivers were workers. Um, however, as a point of general principle, the Supreme Court slightly shifted the dial in terms of how you look at these matters. Because being employment lawyers, you know, we're used to looking at contracts. I mean, we, we love contracts. Every time I sign a, have a birthday card and send one out, I make sure I've got a definition section, six paragraphs and four subparagraphs, just to be complete. But the Supreme Court said, well, the starting point isn't the contract. What's important is because these are statutory rights, is that you look at the purpose of the legislation. And the purpose of the National Minimum Wage Act, uh, for example, or the working time regulations, is to protect vulnerable people. So we're all used to looking at the contract, interpreting it. Supreme Court says, well, you're looking down the wrong end of the telescope. What you start with is an assessment as to whether uh, an individual is vulnerable and in need of protection. Uh, and the fact that you have terms dictated to you it is a fair indication that you may be in need of protection. So th there's a change of approach, I think, from the Supreme Court in Uber, which is going to widen out, I think, the scope of individuals uh, who are likely to fall within the definition um, of 
worker. Uh, and I think it's, although Uber initially said that they didn't think that the judgment had a wider application, uh, they have changed their approach in terms of how they're dealing with their drivers. Uh, and certainly this decision, I think, is going to have a, a wide implication across the whole gig economy. As I say, the focus now is, is really looking at whether the individual is vulnerable and in need of protection, rather than the contract being the starting point uh, of assessing the relationship. I think it's worth saying as well, you know, Uber felt that some of the decision was made because the council didn't like them and that, they, you know, they need to be better. And there is a definite a swing towards businesses behaving better and expectations of them, which fits with the approach that the people are taking. But this is quite wide-reaching. Deliveroo, uh, uh, they've gone on strike. Their workers, well, uh, riders have gone on strike. They're looking for holiday pay. Uh, and it's right at the time that Deliveroo are starting trading for shares. It's hit their share price. It's pretty far-reaching in terms of the implications for organisations. Um, if we don't get this right, and it's still, it, despite the Uber decision, it's still quite confusing in many cases. Um, and I think it will run and run. And the other implications, John and I were, were very sad we were discussing this earlier on, um, we started to see claims from passengers in um, cars against organisations like Uber um, for the cost of their drivers, because now that they're workers, they could pursue Equality Act claims, uh, the workers, which are now against the organisations who formerly said they were not the employers as these people, but now that they are workers, they are on the hook for those claims. So uh, it is quite wide, wide reaching. Uh, are there any particular implications that the, the payroll audience uh, on, on this PQT need to consider or to plan ahead for as a result of some of these these rulings for the, for the coming financial year? Checking out what, what status employees are or working. Yeah. Have you got any books? It expands out everywhere, doesn't it, Nick? Because you've got CIS, you've got IR35, which I guess we'll discuss in a little while. You've got yeah. status, workers, employees, self-employed. And uh, they kind of can touch all of our businesses to an extent. We may have only employees and think none of this affects us. But uh, but some of us may think that actually all our workers are classified in a certain way. But we've had some European rulings recently as well. Not that they impact the UK. I'm talking about national rulings. So some of the work practices that we kind of were seen as the future of work have been outlawed in, for example, Spain and the Netherlands. And there's an element of world that actually expands. And even in the UK, two or three years ago, there was this sort of the gig economy is the future. But the Taylor report actually details a lot of it and stops it. So the government don't think it is and may uh, bring in regulation that stops and prevents. Yeah, I mean, we're, oh, we still, there was a consultation a few years ago on employment status and and, and I, I think we're all kind of keenly waiting the outcome of that. That highlighted what the point that John mentioned earlier, that from an employment rights perspective, you have employees, you have workers, you have the self-employed. But from the tax perspective, you only have two systems and two into three doesn't go whichever way you look at it, certainly not equally. What was made clear during that consultation was that government or HM Treasury had absolutely no intention of creating a third tax system to deal with the, the worker. Uh, so what I think we're starting to see now, and this is merely sort of my layman's um, observation would be that we're seeing where we're seeing new policies 
the term worker is being used as opposed to employee. So all employees are workers, but not all workers are employees. So where we have a new policy, the term worker is being applied to make certain that the rights that have been applied to the employee are also being applied across the way to workers. From a payroll perspective, I would say that what we need to be alert to this discussion and debate because the payroll team may not be aware of these individuals because the pay may not be going through the payroll process or is highly unlikely to be going through the payroll process. So HR individuals need to be aware of every individual who is being paid by the organisation to try and capture whether or not they are genuinely self-employed, whether or not they're a worker or whether or not they're an employee. Being alive to that debate. Um, is and I, think it's, I think it's also fair to say that um, with the Taylor report, whilst some of it was implemented, uh, not all of it was, okay. and it now appears to be that the courts are slightly ahead of the, the government in their thinking uh, on this. PQT without talking about furlough yet again. Um, of course, it's still here in a new financial year. Uh, we're all now preparing for May furlough. While I know it's been the bane of many a payroller's life over the past 12 months, um, we are now in a new financial year, and therefore it's inevitable that there are going to be some questions here uh, raised about how we calculate furlough payments in the new financial year. So uh, let me start with yourself, Lou. What should payroll managers be doing at the moment to ensure they're fully prepared for furlough in May? Well, the first thing I'd say is that the submission date for the um, April claim for the March claim, sorry, is the 14th of April, which is next week. And just to highlight that, that that deadline for March is on the 14th of April. And that's going to be the first priority for the month. Um, for the month, um, as we head into April, um, nothing has changed. There's been no changes that it's the same 80% of an eligible employee salary and it's capped at the 2500 and it's just important then as you're gathering your information together, you're looking at maybe a business, of course, is going to consider lockdown as being eased throughout the UK. Is that going to have a change on the salaries? Are employees going to be slowly brought back in to actually work during the month of April? Because that will impact the payroll team and that will have to be taken into consideration. And it's getting, you know, fluid um, real-time information to payroll for that to be reflected because again we're back to whenever you're making your claim by um, in May then you have to remember that the information has to be accurate and again it's back to the evidence 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 keeping everything having your records showing how you've calculated showing how you've made that um, sum and how that um, it equates to your payroll and I think that's all very important. Thanks. At all, we've already had some questions come in on this. So, one of them is if we are paying furlough for April and someone is on national minimum wage, do we use 80% of last year's rate of pay or the previous year? Simon. Yeah, well, national minimum wage has absolutely no relevance to furlough pay. So, let's make that clear because uh, national minimum wage relates to hours worked and furlough pay relates to hours not worked. So, there is no connection between national minimum wage and furlough. And so the there are three tranche judgment points for furlough. So if they were employed and on the RTI submission in March, the rules that were set in March 2020 are still the basis of reference salary and usual hours. It hasn't changed. 
Now, if they were, didn't qualify for furlough at that point, but they were captured by the October uh, cut-off point for the second, I'll call it the second tranche, then those rules still apply and continue. But there's another tranche that comes in, and that's those employed before the announcement date in March that can start furlough in May. They can't be furloughed before or certainly can't receive a grant. You can furlough them, but the employer will be funding it, I guess. But in May, 1st of May onwards, you can receive grants. There is a different calculation point for them. So it all depends on when the employee was employed with you and when they were first reported in those three separate uh, judgment points. So the calculations haven't changed and they don't change because of uh, a change in national minimum wage. Works time does. So if they're working, so on flexible uh, furlough, for the time they work, you have to ensure that you pay them at national minimum wage rates applicable at the point for that pay reference period. Someone's just commented, are we comparing pay against March 2019 then rather than March 2020? Certainly are, yes. So uh, March and April are compared to 2019. If you're on uh, fluctuating pay, uh, then it, you take the average for the relevant cutoff point, And then if you're judging that with the higher of, you are going back to 2019. Super. And uh, one for you, uh, Samantha. Does anyone know if SSP waiting days can be applied for days an employee was furloughed or would the SSP first day be furlough ended? Uh, yes. I've not come across this, but are, are you saying yes, Simon? I, I'm thinking of people being in work, but they might still, they might be furloughed whilst off sick. Yeah, you, you can't be both uh Nick, so you, you're not entitled to SSP and furlough. You're entitled to one or the other. So you would have ended the, the furlough if you're now treating it SSP. But it all defend, depends on what's defined as qualifying days. And the qualifying day definition hasn't really changed. Just because they're on furlough doesn't mean they're not qualifying. And I think there's a requirement that there's at least one qualifying day a week, regardless whether you work or not. Um, so uh, it's an element of you would use the normal qualifying days. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, maybe that's a bit confusing. I, I don't know if others want to chip in and uh, maybe explain it better than me. But uh, but furlough, if they're on furlough, they're receiving furlough pay. They're not getting SSP. Yeah. To get SSP, they'd have to end the furlough. Any other implications for, for May furlough, Andy, that we need to consider? Perhaps we haven't brought to the table or Samantha? I think Simon was very comprehensive mm -hmm. in his coverage. The comment that I would have for, for payrollers is as we do flow through Boris's roadmap to come out of uh, lockdown, as employees are coming back to work, the question already has been raised about national minimum wage and that impact on furlough payments. And, and, and as Simon's raised, it's important to ensure that as people are coming back into work, particularly if they've been on long-term furlough, their, their pay records might be very out of date. So ensuring that, particularly if they're paid national minimum wage or national living wage, that their rates of pay are uplifted to take account of the time that they're going to be working going forward. Um, so it's ensuring that those, those records are up to date. That's another aspect of that non-furlough, and that's those that are training. Because there's a requirement to ensure those that are actually undertaking training whilst on furlough do receive minimum wage for time training. So you, uh, and that's part of the expense of the employer. Sorry. 
Just, that's all right. Just conscious of time. And I know it's going to be a subject here. We've got some poll results for um, 39%, which is great. That's the majority have said that they believe it's all going smoothly. They are fully prepared. 25% uh, a few hiccups, 10% proving difficult, and 22% doesn't impact our organisation, with 3% asking what IR35 is. Lou, what are your thoughts on those uh, those poll results to begin with? I think it's always um, positive that everybody's fully prepared and all going smoothly. To me, that that's great. Um, I suppose over the last number of months, having been involved with various clients and having um, questions posed. Um, my concern is, do we fully understand the implications of, you know, um, the CEST tool and whether we are um, defining a worker, an employee and a contractor correctly? Have we got robust procedures in place that will be able as a bit as a business that you can stand over so that ultimately, whenever it comes down to the payroller, they know that the decision that's been made by the business um, and they're able to push back on any queries or anything where maybe somebody doesn't agree with what's been delivered if they don't want to be on the payroll is that the evidence there and the support there for the payroll team. Excellent. Now I know there's still as a recruiter I'm still seeing lots of clients with actually quite a bit of confusion around R35. I think a lot of clients still un actually quite unprepared or they do think it doesn't impact them when I know that it could. I know that I've certainly sought advice from experts. So I'd love to know from either Kirsty or John, if there's anything you could give us as an overview to just help clients prepare things perhaps we should be considering. Yes, I suppose it, it, uh, hopefully most people will have, have got nearly there, um, uh, given that IR35 is, is now live, uh, somewhat ironically coming in on what used to be New Year's Day in uh, the 1700s or, or, or whatever from Simon. But the element there is just making sure that, that firstly, I think, you've identified what your IR35 strategy is. Um, are you going to allow um, PSCs uh, in the, the supply chain? Alternatively, are you going to route people through agencies uh, or umbrellas? Uh, I think what I've seen uh, in terms of the approach of various clients um, is that where there is an inside IR35 assessment, uh, then it's a good time to be uh, an agency or an umbrella company uh, because companies are, are not wanting to deal with the payroll aspects of an inside IR35 uh, arrangement. Um, but in terms of, of steps, it, it's all about the, the preparation that, that you would hope people have been doing. Uh, and that includes, of course, working out what contractors that you currently have uh, and what they're doing. Uh, of course, understanding your labour supply chain and who's in your labour supply chain, and carrying out some due diligence uh, on that, particularly if you are, are using other organisations further down the supply chain. Um, it's important, I think, to have uh, a client disagreement process uh, up and running um, to make sure that people know where they can raise uh, issues with, uh, and also to make sure that your contracts are up to date uh, and in place. Because I think a lot of organisations have been focusing on the broader issues of IR35 uh, and coming to the issue of what needs to change within the contracts, provide additional and suitable protections at a rather late stage. So we've been talking about IR35 for a long time. I've been talking about it for a long time, uh, but still for the last month or so, I've been stuck somewhat in a contract bunker, uh, drafting away IR35 agreements. Um, so it's important to make sure that those 
contractual obligations uh, are clearly set out in, in what should be new contracts or amended contracts. I know certainly as a recruiter, I get a slightly different perspective on IR35. And obviously, we've got contracts ourselves we've had to also get prepared. But I know that one bit of feedback I've had, and me and Samantha were talking about this a little bit as well, is some of the people who are self-determining themselves as being outside of IR35 are often very senior level contractors on, on quite high wages and often will have quite an influence on the way a business is run, an influencing position. So they can put some, sometimes those individuals could put pressure on a payroll department to say, I am definitely outside and we've got to do different determinations. So Samantha, how would you handle that? What, what should the payroll team be doing to help sort of mitigate those risks? I think the payroll team need to be uh, picking up on what John said and also Lou, um, ensuring that they are clear on what the client-led dispute process is within their organisation. The legislation puts an obligation on the engager or on the client to ensure that they have a process in place to deal with disputes by the worker or by the fee payer, which might be the agency or other organisation um, who, you know, who's actually making um, the deemed payment over to page one and class one national insurance. So being clear on what that process is, ideally that process will not require the payroll professional to have to have that debate with the client or with the contractor. I know from talking to members of the CIPP when the public sector reforms came in that actually a lot of payroll professionals spent many hours debating and arguing with contractors as to whether or not they should be captured by IR35 or not. The reality is that under the under the reforms, um, the engager or the client is responsible for making that determination, but also ensuring they have a dispute uh, process in place. Ideally, that dispute process needs to be communicated to the contractor and to the fee payer so that they they ensure that they can respond within 45 days. And ideally, that should leave the payroll professional out of it. I, I don't want to look as if I'm kind of passing yeah. the book here, but I think, um, you know, that uh, they... They, they should not be in that firing line because, as you say, if you've got a high, high level, highly paid uh, contract to say, nope, I am I am definitely outside of authority, you know, the uh, IR35, the individual might not have the authority themselves to push back on that. So they need to be clear what the client-led dispute process is and who to upwardly delegate to. Or side delegated. Just just while we're on that, just a, just a couple of quick points, if I can, on uh, the client-led di- disagreement process. Uh, I think it's important that that does or should go out with the status determination statement uh, and clearly identify the person to whom a, a challenge should be made. Uh, however, however, uh, there also should be an education process so that people recognise when a challenge is made within an organisation so that they can escalate it to the right person. Because the 45 days in which to respond is going to start ticking when the challenge comes in, even if it's not directed to the right person set out in your process. Sure. We do have a question that's come in as well. Um, IR35, just from the payroll point of view, if we need to process as inside IR35, do you advise using a separate PAYE reference just for those people? And if we use just the one scheme, is it a problem that all employees and inside IR35 people are paid through the same file? I'm I'm going to say it's a choice of the engager, really what they want to do. There may be implications in relation to uh, counts within a PAYE scheme for certain activity, so just be aware of that. But generally, for example, 
250 for SSP on COVID-19 recovery. Uh, maybe, but generally they're not considered employees uh, for any purpose. So it's purely a personal choice what suits you as an organization best. There's no problem actually having them on the same POI scheme that I'm aware of. Excellent. And last question. If a contractor currently working through their PCS uh, is now PAYE as of the 6th of April, but has just submitted invoices that relate to February and March from the year before, uh, do we treat those now as PAYE or because the work was undertaken before the 6th of April, is it out of the scope? Yeah, I'm going to say no, they predate the law coming in. So that work and those invoices relate to something that predated the 6th of April. So do not fall under the IR35 for private business. If the work then stretches into the period of the 6th of April, that piece of work does. But as long as that work was undertaken before, it doesn't fall under the off-payroll working rules. Fantastic. Well, hopefully that's helpful. That's one. Let's chuck up the next, the last, the last poll. Having heard what we've had to say about R35, how are you feeling now? Let's see if these percentages have increased. We had 39% saying they felt it was going smoothly before. We'll get that poll running to see if any of those results have changed. Um, of course, if you have any separate questions, you can put them in the question box and we'll answer those separately and distribute those as well. So if you've still got questions, do keep them coming. It'll be interesting to see if anyone's, if that's helped people as we as we move through yeah i think a lot of stuff we actually see in social media discussion is on the recovery of secondary ni it's actually illegal to recover the secondary ni from the gross payment to the individual but it's not necessarily legal to uh take that as part of the fees before the gross payment uh i'm thinking of umbrellas so just be wary on construction of these arrangements and what is known to actually be the settlement of uh, payment to the individual. Excellent. Come to uh, to hot topics. Let's start with equal pay. There's been a big equal pay decision on ASDA. I think, it, again, unless you are living in a cave, you will have seen it. But I suggest we talk about that next time because it's not going away anytime soon. So. And I'm just going to mention... Sorry, the importance of a payslip. Just yeah. um, there's been a lot of um, talk on social media that I've seen, as, as Simon says, I do sort of sit in the background. Um, I'm very conscious um, within my job. I have to be careful about what I say and what I address. But on this platform, it is vital. In the UK, the payslip law is addressed through the Payment Wages Act 1991. And the Act grants employees the right to a payslip and outlines what should be included in a payslip. Payslips are given on or before the day that somebody gets paid. I cannot reiterate again how important that is. If somebody gets paid, they have to, before that, on or before that day, get a payslip and the Act will actually break down the information that it has to include. I think it's so important that payroll professionals that will realise that yeah. um, that is a very important part of our profession. Excellent. And just to bring in the fishing moment, that was actually um, influenced by a, a tweet that was put out by the chief executive of HMRC, Jim Hammer, who just said that they, he's confirmed there's been a huge increase in the number of fishing uh, attempts by scammers trying to get access to details. Payroll's always going to be um, an area which, which are going to be targeted by scammers. So that's something we're going to tackle in a little bit more detail in a future PQT as well. But I think it's a really important one looking at cybersecurity. So hopefully if you enjoyed today's uh, PQT, that's going to be a future subject that we're going to be going to be tackling as well. 
it would be nice very quickly can i ask a question just to see the results of that final poll yes of course we had 49 percent the new off pair working walls Excellent. do not impact us and 41 percent our procedure is in writing with the status of determination oh that's it that is encouraging i don't know how everybody else feels but i i'm encouraged by that top line 41 percent um and and uh, i'm very relieved for the 49 percent at the bottom <laughs> <laughs> and there, is, there is actually one question we'll have Andy here just just to cover it while we've sure. got you and um, we have we have someone who's reaching the pension lifetime allowance I'm trying to find information on providing a cash allowance in lieu of a pension and the implications of doing so it's a DC scheme what can be done yeah I mean because the person's reaching a lifetime allowance once they've reached it then they should get a letter from HMRC confirming that which then means that they can be put on a payroll system so they don't have to be automatically enrolled or re-enrolled so that avoids them starting to pay extra contributions which will take them over the lifetime allowance if you choose to give them a cash equivalent and just make sure you do it right so it's not seen as an inducement or co coercion for them to not be in the pension scheme clearly it isn't so just make sure you do it right and it's okay Fantastic. Well, that's a great way to finish. Let me thank the amazing panel, Samantha, Andy, Kirsty, John, Simon and Lou. It's been an absolute pleasure to host today. The next one is the 14th of May at 1.30. Put it in your calendars now. Of course, you'll get invites, but block the time out for a really interesting discussion. I want to take this opportunity again to thank all of you for joining us on this PQT. And I look forward to seeing you all again in May. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into the Payroll Podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time. <laughs>